to read. Um, whole of Psalm 139, and you guys can follow along. Can I get someone to read verses 13 to 16? 13 to 16. No one? Yeah, Danny, thank you. And can I get someone to read 17 to 20? Yep, Jamie, and can I get someone to do 21 to 24? Mike, brilliant. I'll start. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shore, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the lights about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Mm. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, through this reading, we have been reminded of your greatness and your goodness. And so, Father, as we um, look closer at this passage, um, may we discover more not just of these truths, your greatness and your goodness, but Father, may we be impacted and changed by what we are exposed to this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2014, his death shocked the world. In the eyes of the world, he was one of the best the brightest and most beloved actors ever to appear on the big screen. A close friend paid tribute to him and rightly described him as a man who made us laugh big time. 
People close to him described him as a man who was as funny off stage as he was on it. He was one of the most successful and greatest entertainers the world has witnessed. But on the morning of August 11th, 2014, news of Robin Williams' death began to spread. The articles tell us that, um, sadly, he took his own life. His death was shocking to me, and I'm sure it was for most of you here, because I found it hard to believe that someone who made us laugh so hard could be so sad within. Here was a man who appeared to be carefree, all right? He was untroubled, in good spirits most of the time, but in reality, we're told he was deeply distressed. His life was a prime example of the often dichotomy between appearance and reality because most of the time, what is perceived is different to what is true, okay? And the reason we're often unable to discern what is true from what is false is simply because we're human, okay? Man's knowledge of man is limited. But what if? What if someone could tell the difference? What if there was someone out there who knew everything about you? The Bible is very clear about a lot of things. And it's also crystal clear on one thing, and that is God knows everything. For him, there is no difference between appearance and reality. In fact, First Chronicles 28 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Man's knowledge of man may be limited, but God's knowledge of man is unlimited. God knows everything about you and everyone else who resides on this planet. And Psalm 139 is a vignette of this mind-blowing truth. And that truth is that God is beyond comprehension, but at the same time, deeply personal. God is both immense, all right, but he is intimate. He knows everything about you, and guess what? God knows you perfectly. Look at verse 1 again. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word searched here literally means to dig. It's used to describe the searching and digging that takes place when archaeologists search for precious items, okay? You've seen it. Yeah, these guys, they go somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and they set up camps, and they're there for weeks and even months, and they begin to dig, and they begin to dig in order to search for precious items. In a similar way, God has thoroughly searched you, and because of this, he knows you perfectly. No part of you is hidden from God's knowledge. So, the question is, what exactly does God know about you? Firstly, he knows your thoughts. Look at verse 2. It says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows your every thought. And what makes this even more astonishing is that it tells us that God knows your thoughts from afar. What this means is that God knows what you're going to think before the thought crystallizes in your mind. He knows now all that you will think later. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you think about me. He knows what you think about the person sitting next to you. He knows every thought. You're not the only one aware of your thoughts. God knows them and he knows them perfectly. He doesn't only know your thoughts, he also knows your actions. Look at verse 3. It says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. In other words, God knows everything you do. He is acquainted with all your ways. He knows all your habits, whether they're good or bad. He is fully aware of all the things you do that you don't even realize. Okay? We do things and we have habits that we don't even realize. For example, in my own life, let me illustrate that for you. Before I was married, I didn't know I was a creature of habit. Okay? And what that means is that I like to do the same thing over and over again. And my wife is over there. She would attest. We used to live in a nice part of Los Angeles. And there was a coffee shop there, Coffee Bean. And that was my office. I studied there a lot. And what I discovered about myself was that every time I went to Coffee Bean, I would order the same thing, okay, the same thing. And I would sit in the same place, right? And I would be there at the same length of time. And I just kept doing this and I didn't realize it. And it was until my lovely wife pointed it out to me that I was like, oh my gosh, creature of habit. God knows all your ways. He knows them all. God not only knows your thoughts and actions, he also knows your every word. Look at verse 4. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows vividly every word you have spoken from birth until now. Again, this gets even more fascinating because this verse also shows us that God knows the words you've not even spoken yet. Okay? He knows the words you've not even spoken yet. Let's look at verse 4 again. Look at it with your own eyes. It says, even before... A word is on your tongue. Before, oh Lord, you know it all together. God knows what you'll say before you even say it. Whether you whisper it under your breath, or you utter it in private, or you bite your tongue to keep yourself from saying what you really wanted to say, okay? God knows. God knows you perfectly. He is not distant. He is near, and he's aware of every one of your thoughts, words, and your deeds. And the reason God knows you perfectly is because he is close to you. Look down at verse 5. Look what it says. It says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. What this is saying is that God surrounds you. He is behind you and in front of you. Charles Spurgeon said this, we cannot turn back and so escape him, for he is behind, okay? We, we cannot go forward and outmarch him, for he is before. That's crazy, all right? Turn back, God is there. March for, like, God surrounds us. God has boxed you in. He has surrounded you. 
And this is what's interesting. Depending on the relationship you have with him, his knowledge of you and surrounding of you is like an army or a father's embrace. No thought you think, no word you speak, and no action you take escapes God's knowledge. He knows everything about you, and he knows you perfectly. Question. How do these truths make you feel? How do they make you feel? Overwhelmed? Amazed? I would guess they blow your mind. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God knows everything about us. It's really hard. And this response is expected because it's exactly how David, who is the author of this um, amazing passage, Psalm, felt. Okay, That is why he said in verse 4, after realizing how much God knows about him and how God knows him perfectly, this is how David responds. He says, look at verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is stunned by how deeply and intimately God knows him. The knowledge, this knowledge exceeds his comprehension and even his imagination. It's like when we see or experience something out of this world and it blows our mind and we try and figure it out and we can't and it creates in us this sense of frustration and amazement. And let me give you an example. When I first saw the Grand Canyon, this is how I felt. I walked up to it, and I had heard so much about it. You know, and sometimes when you hear great reviews and people talk about something so amazing, you just don't want to be disappointed. And so when I was going, I was like, uh, I don't know. But when I saw the Grand Canyon, it absolutely blew my mind. It really did. On the other hand, my son, Jesse, who was five at the time, walks and is exposed to the Grand Canyon. And he says to me, Dad... Looks like a regular mountain. <laughs> so cute. But me, on the other hand, absolutely blown away. Absolutely blown away by the grandeur and the, uh, the, the, the amazing experience I had in setting eyes on the Grand Canyon. And this is how these truths about God should make you feel. They should absolutely blow your mind. The fact that God knows everything about you, he knows your thoughts, he knows your words, he knows your deeds, should cause you to say, just like David, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. But there is more. God does not only know you perfectly. God is with you continually. Firstly, he is with you at every location. Look at verse 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? David here begins with two rhetorical questions. These questions are meant to prove a point, not demand an answer. And the point he's trying to prove is that God is with you continually. There is nowhere 
you can go where God's presence is absent. David doesn't stop there. He continues to emphasize this point by saying in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shore, you are there now. The words heaven and shore describe the furthest locations upwards and downwards. They They represent the highest heavens and the deepest part of the earth. And these locations, David is reminding us that God is there. Furthermore, David adds in verses 9 and 10, he says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Wings of the morning, incredible, beautiful and elegant metaphor, but question is, what does that mean? The word wings here signifies light. Therefore, what is meant by wings of the morning is morning light or the rays of the rising sun. So, what David is saying here is that if it was possible, if it was possible for me to fly as swift as the morning light from the east to the west and in a moment get to the furthest parts of the world, Guess what? Even there, God is there. What David is trying to communicate here is that God is inescapable. There is nowhere on this planet you can go without God being there. And if you try, you'll be like a kid that wants to play hide and seek with daddy or mommy and closes their eyes and go, Mommy, Daddy, find me. Mommy, Daddy, find me. God is with you continually, and he is with you at every location. Secondly, this is important, if God is with you at every location, this must also mean he is with you in every situation. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look down at verses 11 and 12. It says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Light or darkness makes no difference to God. He sees us clearly in the night as he sees in the day. There is no hiding place from God. God sees clearly all that is done in darkness, but... These verses, seem, these verses seem to be communicating more. I believe they're also trying to tell us that even in your darkest times, even in your most dire situation, God is with you. He is with you when everything is going well and life is bliss, but he's very much with you when you're struggling, when life is as tough as nails. Many of you here are going through a difficult season in your life. You may have all sorts of health issues. Some of you may have major financial issues. Or your issues might be in the form of an addiction that will destroy your life If you're not delivered, some of you here might have a marriage that is complex and you and your spouse just cannot reconcile on certain issues. And so every time these issues come up, there is no peace. There is war in your home. And some of you are going through 
difficult times and these dark nights are tormenting your soul. God seems far and distant. All right? And I felt that this week. Felt that this week. She's going through a difficult season, my family and I. And I was just praying. I was like, God, where are you? Are you going to intervene? Are you going to do something? Why do you feel so distant? I was haunted by unbelief. And I'm sure you guys, even if it's not now, you've been haunted by unbelief. And I'm here to help you see, through God's word, that God knows. Whether you believe it or not, he is with you. He knows you perfectly. And he is with you in every situation especially when you feel down and out. And he has sent me through his word to remind you that he has not abandoned you. He is near and he cares. He's gracious and loving and powerful and will work all things out for your good and his glory. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, his hand shall lead you and his right hand shall hold you, verse 10 declares. God knows you perfectly. He is with you continually and cares for you because he made you and he made you wonderfully. Look at verses 13 to 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In these three verses, just read. Okay, we are exposed to some of the most extraordinary truths about you. Okay, these are about you. It's not about the person next to you, it's about you. And the words used in these verses are absolutely remarkable. Okay, Um, but words like, yeah, look, formed, knitted, and made, and woven stand out. And the reason why they stand out is because they convey in a marvelous way way the intimate relationship God has with you. And this is what they're trying to communicate. You're not a mass-produced item. You were individually and personally handmade by God himself. God gave you all of your features. Your internal and external appearance was his idea, your personality, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're smart or athletic, all this, every part of you, everything about you was made by God himself. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Even though these truths are the truest things about you, at times, if you're like me, I find myself despising who I am. I really do. Look, I'm 35, right? 35, 35. And I've not been able to grow a beard, okay? I've not. (laughs) It's just one thing that just keeps barking me. I'm always like, God, why can't I grow a beard like Dan Boss? Why am I unable to have a mane? And I have other things I complain about, but I want a beard. 
I want a beard like Jeff. Look at that beard. God, they're everywhere. Arthur, <laughs> look here, beards. Gosh, need to stop talking about beards. Like me. If you find yourself despising yourself, God says to you today, and this is what he says to you, and this is the truest thing about you. I personally made you. I intricately knitted you together while you were in your mother's womb. I gave you your features, your personality, and your abilities, and I want my opinion of you to outshine any others. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an afterthought. God formed and fashioned and made you. You are his masterpiece. God not only made you wonderfully, we are told in verse 17 that he, verse 16, sorry, that he mapped out every day of your life. And this is a powerful truth about you. Jeremiah 1.5 supports this. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And during that time, God had scheduled every day of your life. You are here today because God planned for you to exist in this day. Isn't that mind-blowing? Don't just think like you wake up every morning and it's like, yeah, I'm just, no, like you are here today and you're going to be here every day as much as God gives you because God planned way before you were born for you to be here. God has been involved at every stage of your life. He knows every, everything about you. Why? Because he made you. And because of this, he thinks about you constantly, verses 17 to 18 tell us. God knows you perfectly. God is with you continually. God made you wonderfully. God thinks about you constantly. So far, In our passage for this morning, David has been expressing beautifully and poetically the intimate relationship God has with him. Okay? We've been hearing it. God, you, are, you know me and you made me and you are with me and you're so intimate with me and all of those things. Then suddenly, he begins to say in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. What is going on? One minute, David is like, God, you know me and you think about me and you made me. Then suddenly, it's slay the wicked. These verses will never appear on a Christian t-shirt. Okay? They'll never be found in a worship song in church. Imagine walking into a church and hearing, Oh, slay the wicked. I mean, like, crazy. What is happening? One moment, his tone and words are warm and pleasant. Now they are violent and unpleasant. In verse 19, David desires the wicked to be slain by God. He wants nothing to do with them. He says, O men of blood, depart from me. 
He goes on to describe the wicked as those who speak against God with malicious intent and take God's name in vain. In verse 20, he refers to them as enemies of God. Why the sudden change? Does this portion of the psalm um, belong here? Is it a misfit? Is it a square peg in a round hole? What's going on? Based on first impressions, this part of the psalm does seem like a misfit. But a close examination reveals that it actually fits perfectly with what has come before and what will come after. In fact, listen to this, this is the right and expected response to the truths about God that have been revealed. And our response should be an unwavering devotion to God. This devotion or allegiance to God is further clarified in verses 21 and 22, which reads, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David here, what he's doing is pledging his allegiance to God. The wicked are God's enemies, and because of this, they are his enemies. David's love for God is the motivation behind these expressions. He is so absorbed with who God is and how intimately God knows him and everyone else in this world. And as a result of this, he begins to love what God loves and hate, God, and hate what God hates. For example, I absolutely love my wife and kids. I absolutely do. And I always say, if you don't like my wife and kids, I don't like you. Which makes sense. Can't have someone saying, I hate you. I hate, my, I hate your wife. I hate your wife. And I'm like, I love you. I love. No, it doesn't make sense. You mess with my family. You mess with me. In the same way, in a similar way, David's love for God is the catalyst behind his hatred for wickedness. Why? Because sin is ultimately against God. What about you? How do you view sin in the world or in your city? How do you respond? Okay, how do you respond when you hear about a murderer? or rape, or theft, or injustice, or slavery, or racism? How do you respond to those things? Does your devotion to God cause you to hate sin as much as he does? Now, if we were to stop here, we would assume that this is calling all of us, everybody, to be religious finger pointers, okay? It's as if David is pointing the finger at everyone else, okay? But David then says something that changes the focus. He starts pointing the finger at himself. He says in verse 23 and 24, look at it with me, let's read it together. Search me, O God. And know my heart, 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What's going on here? Here, David is asking for God to search him and know him. Okay? Do you guys agree with that? That's what's happening. Okay? But the question is, hasn't he already made it clear that God knows him fully? All right? Why is he still asking God to search him and know him? The reason is not that God may know, because God knows everything, but that he, that is David himself, may know his own heart. In verse 19 to 20, David points out wickedness in others. But he then asked God to search him because he is aware that he too is a sinner and sin and wickedness lurks within his own heart. Jerry Bridges, love this man, great author. He says this, we have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins in our society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined, subtle sins. Okay? This is what he's saying. We get so concerned with everyone else's sin. We get so concerned with sin in our society, and we should. It should grieve us every time we hear of injustice. It should grieve us every time we hear of murder or race. It should grieve us. But what begins to happen is that we begin to maximize sin in the lives of others And when we do that, we end up minimizing sin in our own lives, all right? If you were to ask God to search you in order to reveal subtle sins in your life, I wonder what he would reveal. If you were to ask God to search you in order to reveal subtle sins in your life, I wonder what he would show you. All of us, okay? Our saints, we've been saved, but we're also sinners. And we're sinners because we are either religious hypocrites, right, or rebellious hedonists. The religious points the finger at others, and the rebellious shakes their fists at God. One denies, and the other defies. So then... If this is all true, if there is wickedness in all of us, if we are all religious or rebellious, how then, like David, can we ask God to search us and trust that he will lead us in the way everlasting? How? This is how. The reason David could approach God and ask with confidence to be searched is the same reason the prodigal son who was wicked and rebellious, could run into the arms of his father. Many of you guys know the story of the prodigal son. If you don't, let me just retell it. Once there was a young man who approached his father, and this is in Luke 15, uh, and asked for his inheritance, and the father gave it to him. And not long after that, the son took all of his inheritance and took it away and left his father's house. And then he went to this country, and there alone in this country, he squandered all of his wealth 
in wild living. And after he had, sent, uh, he had spent everything, there happened to be a severe famine. And he was looking for jobs. And he couldn't find a job apart from a job working in a farm with pigs. And he got so hungry. He got so hungry. He started to eat the food, right? The pigs ate. And one day he thought to himself, there are servants in my father's house who eat well. Okay, here I am starving. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Okay, and so what he does is he takes, he takes off and he begins to head back home to his father knowing that he had blown it. But he goes anyway. But wow, this is amazing. While he wasn't even close to his father's house, his father sees him and runs to him and gives him a hug. What does that tell us? That tells us that his father, every single day, had been waiting for his son. And finally, when he saw his son, even before his son got close, he ran to his son and gave him a hug. And the father said to him, son... Welcome back. I am glad you are here. And then his father called all of his servants and said, My son was dead, but now he is alive. And that's just the basic story of the prodigal son. And what that communicates is this. The reason the prodigal son could return home, though he had blew it, was because he had a need and realized his father was the only one that could meet his needs. He came humbly. Okay? He came humbly expecting to serve food at the table, but he ended up becoming the guest of honor at the table like the prodigal son. We are all in need, every single one of us. But our need is not food or shelter, but forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God our Father. If you are here today and you are a Christian, we have moments in our lives when we are prodigal children. But guess what? Your Father who loves you is always waiting for you. Your Father who created you is always waiting for you. So when you sin and you feel condemned and you feel like you can't go back to God and ask for forgiveness about that same thing over it, know that your Father is willing and able and because of His grace and love, He's willing to accept you back, embrace you and celebrate your repentance. And if you are here and you are not a Christian, be reminded that God made you. He created you. And you, being far from him and separated from him because of your sin, it's the reason why you are separate. Because of your sin, it's the reason why you're separated from him. And right now, you can make a decision to begin to return to your father, to go to God and pray to God and say, God, I have taken the life you have given me and lived it for myself. And now I want to begin to live life for you and with you. And God our Father provided Jesus for you so that you may be forgiven and so that you may have eternal life. Because of Christ, you don't need to fear that he knows you perfectly. 
because of Christ, you can know God is with you in every season. Because of Christ, you, you can have a personal relationship with God, your creator and the one who sustained you. And because of Jesus, you can trust that God will reveal sin, not to condemn you, but to provide healing and growth in your life. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for you and your grace. Thank you for reminding us of who you are. Thank you for reminding us of the intimate relationship you have with us. And thank you for reminding us that you are a heavenly father who created us and who is willing because of your grace, because of your love, because of all that Jesus has done, you are willing to forgive us for all of our sins, as long as we decide to take steps towards you. Even one step towards you means that you will run to us, Father. And so, Father, I pray for all of us here. What an amazing truth. I can only do so much. May you take everything we've studied. May you bring comfort where there needs to be comfort. Um, and may you bring uh, more of a passion for you uh, and gratefulness for you and thankfulness for you not just because of what you know but even though you know all about us you don't condemn us you want to reveal sin in our lives so that you may lead us um, to maturity in you we love you, Father. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came and who died and who rose again for our benefit, for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for us and our future hope. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.